Well, this morning we're, we're continuing on in our values series, and, and this week's value uh, comes to us from Nikki Davis. She's filled in from uh, Gemma and written our new value down there, and very, very well done. Nikki, are you still in here? Nice work, mate. A lot of pressure following from Jim. Yep. We like to profile people in this church just so that we all know what's going on. It's interesting. I, I kind of um, do a little bit of reading as I'm fossicking around trying to work out what I might say uh, of a Sunday. And a couple of weeks ago, I was reading through some stuff. Actually, it was last week for exceeding generosity. And I came across a letter written in the second century. And what I want to do this morning is, is start our service by reading, or start this message, essentially, by reading this letter to you. I'm going to go back into the, into the second century there. Uh, it was written around about, they think, about 130 AD, somewhere around there. Fortunately, the guy who wrote it, uploaded it onto his iCloud, and I was able to download it onto my laptop, and then onto my iPad. It was great. So actually, It was dug up by an archaeologist. But it's, it's a letter written by someone who we only know as uh, Mathetus. He goes by this name, which is um, a little Greek word that means they've, they've kind of trying to like student or disciple. And a lot of people who have read this letter and looked at it think, well, he could have been the disciple of the Apostle John. That could be the author of this letter, but no one really knows. And he's writing to a pagan leader named Dia, Dia I can't say these words, Diognetus. There's, and so he's this pagan leader that's kicking around in the second century there. And he's obviously got in, ta- in contact with him, he said. And essentially he's asked the question, well, what is with these Christians? They are a rare breed. They are a different breed. They don't function like other people in society. Can you, can you write to me and tell me what gives with these Christians? Why do they behave the way they behave? What's going on there? And so what I want to do is pick up this letter in what is essentially chapter 5 of the letter. Now, hear me. Denise read scripture to us, inspired word of God. God inspired um, Matthew to write this down, and we have it as scripture. This is just correspondence, okay? This is just a letter. This is, this is just a letter between two people. This is not inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, therefore we just treat it as a letter, okay? Everybody good with that? Good. Just want to make that distinction. Okay. He's writing and he says about these Christians. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as the land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on the earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws. At the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are known and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored 
and yet in their very dishonour are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet justified. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign to them any reason for their hatred. What an interesting read. A description of the second century community of God. And as I was reading through this letter, I could not help but think of what, what Christ has said in, 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 what, in what Denise has read to us this morning. Here they are, a Christian community uh, effectively operating as a, as a city on a hill. A community that's being observed by everybody. And the effect of their community living is as of salt and light to the world around them. It's influencing the world around them through how their internally uh, redeemed culture is being lived out amongst themselves. That's what's going on here. Um, A lad by the name of Timothy Keller, he's a pastor in a Presbyterian church in New York, has made some observations of this letter about some of the things that are going on in here. And I'm just going to elaborate on a couple of them and bring them to you. The first thing that that we kind of note, and we're only going to do a couple, there's a lot in it, is within this letter, within this observation of the Christian community, is a complete absence of racism or cultural elitism. We saw this ourselves. We understand why this is. We saw this when we looked at uh, the value of spirit-led vitality. We saw right out of the gate... The gospel makes no distinction. On the day of Pentecost, it was preached to every nation equally, without prejudice. The gospel went out. There is no special race of people. Do you know what I mean? Christians are Jews, Greeks, Romans, Africans, barbarians, Gentiles. But the normal prejudices that come and keep these little communities segregated don't exist in this Christian community. They've been dissolved by the gospel because we are people who are unified in Christ, not in any heritage or geographical location. I was in a a pub in Darwin once and we were were in the the black bar. My uncle's married to uh, Aboriginal lady, full-blooded Aboriginal lady. So we we were in this black bar. It was a little nerve-wracking. But within that black bar... There is even further. So they're segregated from the, from the whiteies who are drinking over here. And, and then within the, that context, even within there, they're segregated even further. Uh, mainland Aboriginal guys are drinking here and then various different islanders are drinking on their tables. They don't talk to each other. They're all in there to drink, but they're all segregated. They've all got a common purpose, but they remain segregated. It was an interesting observation. Not so with the church. We worship together in spite of our differences, because of a common experience of grace that we have in Christ. There's level ground around the cross. Whether you come to that cross as a doctor, whether you come to that cross as a bricklayer, no matter what or who you are, how bad or good, you all need the same amount of grace from that cross. There's no distinction. It melts uh, racism. It melts barriers. 
These Christians lived without racial animosity or geographical sensitivity. They were the kind of people who, who welcomed in boat people because they knew the earth and everything in it was the Lord's and not theirs. They traded in their border protection for welcoming the needy. We read they dwell in their own countries but simply as sojourners. They, they, don't, they don't think they possess this. It's God's to be used. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreign as every foreign land is to them as their nat- native country and every land as of their land of birth is of strangers. Christians, they, they're no longer taking their identity from their nation or their, their place of birth, but they're, they're, they're taking their identity in Christ. And it's had, the, it's had the, the, the effect of melting these normal distinctions, these normal barriers. That's the observation. Second observation that we read was that these Christians have a high view of life. All life is sacred, as Morgan would say. Just a little reference to those who watch The Walking Dead. They marry, but they don't kill their offspring. What an odd thing to say. Oh, they get married, but then they don't go and kill their kids. How odd. But you see, back in pagan Roman culture, back in and even previously existing cultures, if, if you had a child that didn't fit your preferred parenting plan or, or, or your five-year you know, program, particularly if you were unfortunate enough to be born a female in this culture, you could be simply put in a pot, in a clay pot, left out on the street to bake or, or thrown in a river. It was a common practice. If the inconvenience of the wrong child turned up, Infanticide was rampant in, in this culture. Kids were disposable commodities, as were slaves. If you'd had enough with your slave, if your slave, I don't know, wasn't picking things quick enough, you could dispose of them. You could literally have them put to death. Slaves were not seen primarily as people. They were seen as chattels, as possessions. People were seen as possessions. Are they going to improve your place in life or are they going to diminish it? You, that's how you made the decision. But you see, these Christians came along and they said, all life is sacred. Everybody's the image bearer of God. And there's historic documents of Christians walking around the streets, taking children out of clay pots and adopting them into their homes and raising them as their own. Radical. Radically different. Christians alone saw all life no matter how unwanted, how, how inconvenient, how economically burdening, burdening to be precious. You know, they looked after the widows. Widows were an economic burden. But the Christians took them in and, 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 and looked after them. Maybe ringing in their ears, perhaps, was the words of Jesus on the cross, you know, here is your mother. John, you know what he spoke on the cross about his mum? Look after my mum. There was no end to their kindness. Slaves are now brothers. How You've got that little letter of Paul to Philemon where he says, uh, Onesimus or whoever it is has run away. He's a slave. He's run away. And he's met Paul. He's become a Christian. And now he's converted. And Paul says, you're not to receive this guy as a slave. You're to receive him as your brother. You've got, oh, it's just, that's the end of slavery right there. Radically different people. Building a radically 
different culture. Thirdly, we read that they, they had this kind of weird, unusual view of sex, of how that was to be kind of uh, practiced in life. These Christian communities are inhabited by people who they share their table with everybody. You can eat whatever you like in this house. Come and, and she said, there's no way you're sharing my bed. That's an exclusive zone. In a pagan culture, sexuality was merely an expression of appetite, of personal gratification. It was like having a meal or going to the Colosseum, you know, to watch a good movie or, or whatever they did at the Colosseum. Christian community comes along and practices a radically different sexual ethic. Rather than sex just being some, an appetite that needs to be fed, to be tamed or developed into a, a lifestyle or a, even an identity, and we see that a lot now, it's God's good gift to be celebrated, to celebrate a covenant between a husband and wife where they say they are for each other and that they give of each other exclusively and completely and permanently to the other. And in, and in that environment and out of that environment, that's where sexuality is to be explored and experienced. And they bring this, this new ethic to bear on their sexual ethics. And rather than, and here's the crazy thing, you know, in this culture, rather than people feeling like they've been further enslaved, they actually felt further liberated. They didn't feel as though they'd been robbed from something. All of a sudden, flooding into life is, is dignity, uh, relationships that have the capacity to have genuine intimacy and security. And the bedroom was the place where healing and mutual edification took place rather than just feeding an appetite. And it was radical. And finally, as we, as we see this observation of the early Christian church, we re, and we talked about this last week, but this is a Christian community that's exceedingly generous. They share their table with all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They lack in all things, and yet abound in all things. That's what these Christians are like. That's what I've seen. Let me tell you about them. The Christian community was marked by a Fearless generosity. They understood that they had a sovereign God who was the great provider and they lived with a radical deep heart change because of the selfless giving of their God who held nothing back, who even gave his own son for them. And we saw it, didn't we see it last week? And now being friends with God, what, what, what won't he hold back? What will he hold back from us? It changes us. They lived with their doors open, their tables open, and their hands open. They gave out of their poverty, and it was to them riches. They weren't driving around in the latest chariots or wearing Gucci or Romani clothes and handbags. But they had changed their view of, uh, of cultural value from self to others. And that's what the gospel does, you see. It radically changes our hearts. And now these guys are living this out. History tells us, if you're a student of history, that Christianity sweeps through this pagan culture, through pagan Rome like wildfire. It went from being purely a persecuted kind of little uh, cult thing, hiding in the catacombs, to setting the cultural agenda of the Roman Empire. How on earth did it do it, given its complete 
differentiation with the culture around it. How? Why? In a culture where self is the highest ideal, where you could think nothing of making a lifestyle choice that involved infant side, where you could think of making nothing of a lifestyle choice that involved doing away with a slave, where you, where you, where, you know, they wear out your replacement, where, where, where sexual expression is just about gratification and the service of needs. This is a culture that's hedonistic, if you like. It's fueled by decadence and corruption and immorality. How did this message of the gospel win the day, so to speak? How did that happen? Well, here, here in, in, in Matthew 5, I think we get a bit of an idea. Christians simply live as a city on a hill. They lived as a community that was radically different and they were salt and light to the world around them. And here's the thing. The beauty of their lifestyle could not be matched. Their lifestyle was startling. They cared. They loved. They were selfless. And people looked at them and said, what has happened within the lives of these people to make them this way? This, this is not something you can do through white-knuckled determination. What's going on with these people? See how they love each other. See how they even love their enemies. That was the testimony of this community. The gospel changes everything, is what this community was saying as it lived out these ethics amongst itself. Here in this community is, is a redeemed cultural ethic. People who are in this community have felt a deep heart change in their lives. It comes from being in a personal relationship with a living God. Now, freeway. How do people see us? How do people see the collective witness of freeway? I, I'm not talking about... How do people understand you as an individual? Well, I'm sure everybody knows you're a Christian, okay? How do they see us as a collective witness? How, how, we, how we work together, how we, how, we, how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, how we, how we have the capacity to, to forgive each other, to edify each other, to build each other up in maturity and relationship with God. That is what this is talking about. That's what Matthew 5, uh, 11 to 16 is talking about, the collective community witness of the redeemed culture of a Christian people, not individual ones. So if Tim Richardson was to write a letter and say, uh, do tell from what you've seen about the people at Freeway, do tell me about these Christians. How do they roll? What are they like? I mean, what would they say? Would it be like this letter that we've got from the second century? Well, we've got a heap of these values here. A heap of these values that tell us how we're going to live, how we're going to be a new way to live. We're going to be biblically faithful people. We're going to be a community in Christ. So not commonality. It's not about football. It's not about politics. It's about being redeemed in Christ. We're going to be led by spirit-led vitality. That is, we're not the people driving our lives. We, we surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that drives us as we read this word, this drives. Okay. We're prayerfully fervent. Our lives are surrendered to the sovereignty of God. And all of this takes place in our lives and our worship is renewed. We're no longer worshipping our cars and our wives and our things. We're worshipping God, who the giver of these things. We're selfless in our service because we have been served. It's God who served us first. It's God who continues to serve us. 
dying on a cross for us, serving us. And so marked by that, we go, well, who are we to hold back to each other? We serve each other. We're relationally truthful. We looked at that. When, when you get in relationship with God and you realize that there's nothing, that, that, that he moves towards you while you were still sinners, that everything about your life that you kind of think you should be ashamed of and afraid of and never exposed to anyone, God says, I see all that, but I'm still moving towards you. And I'm going to die for you. Now, when we get that and, and we free ourselves from being the center of our own lives and put Christ there, that frees us up to be relationally truthful with each other. We, we, we can deal with the sin of our lives with each other in a community context. That's what the witness of a community is. A city on a hill. That's what this word here means. A city on a hill. What Jesus is saying is he is talking about a community of people come together. Okay? Um, we practice hospitality. We're exceedingly generous. We've been through these things. What's going to be the testimony of this place? In our passage, Jesus kind of uses some metaphors. And we, I've spoken to this a little bit about this city. There's three, there's three metaphors in here. There's a city, there's salt, and there's light. But they're not um, exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. They've, they're all coming together to paint a united picture. All right? These are not three separate um, metaphors, but they're creating a coherent picture. And what Jesus is trying to get across to these disciples, and we've just been through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've looked at all the ethical demands of uh, the Christian life, is that we are supposed to be a community, a culture, a city. Apollos is the, Apollos is the word, and it means a people gathered together that is not... We don't, it, it exists. It can't be hidden. A city on a hill. Cities back in the day were whitewashed walls and things, and during the daytime you could, the sun would reflect off them and you could see them. You could see where they were. The traveller could take refuge. Travel was perilous in those days. The traveller could seek the city, find refuge, but also the city could see the traveller coming because you, know you don't want an army sneaking up on you and taking your city down. But then at night, the lights, because cities were on a hill, the lights would shine out and the light would go out into the surrounding countryside and people would know that's where refuge is. We've got to get to that light. So Jesus is taking this common picture and saying, you are to be a community that is not hidden, not, 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 not hiding around anywhere, but is on display. Everyone can see you. Everyone can look in and peer in and see what's going off, on. And when they look in and they peer in and, and they look at how you live together, it should be like light and salt. He uses these two images to describe the effect that this new culture has on those who look in. The beauty of their lives was so matchless that it changed the surrounds of them. Here's a thing that we know about salt and light. Uh, light has, does two things. Uh, it illuminates, allows people to see, it illuminates beauty, uh, it lights things up and does all that sort of jazz. But you know what else it does? It exposes corruption. It exposes ugliness. Light in the Bible is always truth. Whenever the word light turns up, it's always about the truth of God. So the light comes, it allows us to walk, it allows us to see, it illuminates the good things, but it also exposes corruptions. And so people will either be attracted to that or they'll push away from that. But it doesn't matter. We are to be light. We are to speak truth. 
Jesus is the light of the world. Our light is not our light, it's our, it's our testimony, it's our witness, and it's derived from Jesus, and we're to live it out. The, the words here are emphatic. This, this you are the light of the world is not aspirational. If you're a Christian, you are the light of the world. Reality, okay? You are the salt of the earth. Salt itself has, has two, two positive um, effects. It preserves, it adds flavour. Okay? We all go, yeah, we're, we're to be salt, we're to, we're to add the value of things, we're to add flavour to things. But you know the major function of salt in the day was to preserve against decay, was to stop things from rotting. We are to be salt. We are to season the, the, the world around us, but we are to have an effect that stops decay. Okay, So when people peer into our Christian community, they see people acting as salt, uh, stopping decay, stopping rot, stopping things that cause relational destruction amongst ourselves. We're active about that. No one's sending off emails in, in, in here to tear someone down. You know, no one's kind of saying cutting words to their spouses and, and destroying the relationship there further. Rather, we're, we're preserving things. But here's the, thing, the other thing about salt. It has these two uh, positive attributes, but it also has a negative attribute. It stings when you rub it in to a wound. And so some people just don't like the sting, so they push away too. Here's the thing about the, the Christian witness. We are called to be a city on a hill, a countercultural community where we're edifying each other, where we're building each other up, where we're having these higher values that are not coming from our own uh, goodness but are derived from God and working out in our lives. And they act as salt and light in the world. And so what we see is, as we get to the end of this passage, is that as our good works go on display, people will praise God. And that's what we exist for. As they encounter the witness of our church here, how we live our lives together, no one's, no one's backstabbing here, uh, we have the capacity. So some of these things are about if, if someone offends you in this building, you don't just go off and jump on Facebook and rip them to pieces. You're kind of like, you have the capacity to go, hey, what, what, what gives? And have a conversation. And if that person is in Christ, then we know we're for each other and we can redeem. It's all about redeeming relationships. The gospel is about redeeming relationships. Relationships being redeemed with God and then out of God, relationships being redeemed with God. We have the capacity to redeem and elevate and edify relationships with each other. When people see that we're not, we're not into destroying each other, we're into building each other up, they want to know why, because that's not normal. And so it points to our God. We're to be a city on a hill and declare the goodness of our God. But the other thing that we read at the beginning of this verse is, blessed are you when others revile you. There's pushback to this gospel. Not everyone wants to digest salt. Not everybody wants to have their lives exposed by light. And so... Like that letter that we read said, they revile, they hate the Christians, but they can't give any good reason to why they hate them. It's just that our sin, when it's exposed by light, our sin, when it encounters the, the, um, the preserving nature of the gospel that wants to stop decay, that rubs us wrong. 
And so we push back. So here's the thing. We go about our business. We just cultivate what it is to live lives that edify each other, that build each other up, where we're loving each other rather than tearing each other down. And in that, that witness is how the message of the gospel gets legs and is practically demonstrated to the world. Because let me tell you something, you can jump up and down all you like about telling people that their sin is going to hell unless they see the change of quality in the lives of the people who are giving this message, then do you know what it's like? It's like salt that loses its saltiness. And it's like someone who would put a light under a, um, a, a thing that covers a light. Uh, it's foolishness is the word that's being used. Jesus is not giving a chemistry lesson. We all know sodium chloride is a stable compound and salt can't lose its saltiness. The salt they had in those days though, was a different... It had a lot of other elements in it that could wash... The salt could actually wash out of them and you'd be left with a useless pile of muck. Now, if you were to use that on your food, that's just stupidity. If you were to light a um, lamp up and put it under a, a pot, that's just stupidity. A church that, that, that doesn't uh, have a gospel ethic within its community of love and care is foolishness to the world. And it is the main reason why people don't welcome churches. So let's live. Let's, let's be people who... Cu- the word, we cultivate these things. They don't happen by magic. It takes work to go and... When, I'll tell you now. I'll, when I say something dumb and cutting to my wife, like I, I, I know, I know, I am the one person on this planet who can be the cruelest to Sandy because I know all her buttons, Okay? I know all her insecurities. I know all her weaknesses. So I know what to say to rip her down to the ground. And occasionally I do that. Now, that's, not, that's to my shame. Now, a gospel ethic says, get back in that room and apologise. And that's what we're like. So I go back in and I say, I don't even know why I did it. I was feeling attacked. It was about me. And so I thought I'd take you down. You know, and I'm sorry. The only reason I can do that is because I turn around and I, and I go, you know what? Uh, gives me the capacity to do this stuff is that I know we all need grace. And I know that my wife understands that. And so when I walk back in there, she's going to go, this fool needs grace. And that's how she's going to receive my apology. And that's how we are to be with each other. We all need this grace. How we are in our marriages, how I am in our marriages, how we to be. That's why the marriage is a picture of what the church is. It's an environment in which we can be honest and open with each other. Okay, A city on a hill. A particular redeemed culture that's different to the culture of the world that says, do you know what, it's all about you. So do you know, if you feel slighted, then you just, you just, you just crush that person who did that to you. Whereas we go, no, actually, let's go lift that person up. 